skipping ahead to 12 <coughs> through 13. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Thank you, buddy. <clears throat> We're switching up again, again, uh, as a church plant, we can do this. Uh, we will no longer be doing updates from up front, uh, mainly because, you know, just uh, confession on my behalf. Uh, I hate doing updates and announcements. I feel like, a, like an MC at a party or something like that. It feels very weird to me. Uh, so what we're going to do is instead, uh, in your bulletin, you will see updates. They, there they will be from there on out. I want to walk through that bulletin a little bit with you. On the front is our order of service. Uh, here's what I'm hoping from this. And yes, I had one person as I explained this. He commented to me. He said, Clint, you know that there's these things called cell phones. Electronic copies are cool. And I told him, yes, but I hate machines because they will come to defeat me one day. Um, so we're going to do hard copy. And here's the hope. The hope is you can easily take this. You can put this on a fridge somewhere. You can take this with you. What I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be taking this throughout the week uh, and just keeping it in my back pocket and praying for it for the entire week. And if I speak with you um, on a Sunday or if I text you and say, hey, how can I be praying for you? I'll jot that down. So this is kind of like my tour guide for the week. You'll see that uh, order of service in the front. You will see on the inside, you'll see a, a few things, but one of which is continuing worship. On that, I'm encouraging you. As I've done study for the sermon, uh, it's wild how much of Scripture quotes itself. Uh, scripture is not this book that was just randomly found somewhere and plucked out and jumbled together like some jigsaw puzzle. Scripture quotes itself quite regularly. If you want to know, uh, go through the book of Acts. When Peter is doing all these incredible sermons, the book of Acts is actually sermons based upon the Old Testament. They're wild. They're incredible. Uh, it quotes itself so often. As I do the study, I'm, I'm trying to find those verses. Those verses that you see in front of you are from the study of Jude this week. So uh, Monday through Friday, because many of you are on Saturday, kind of weekend feel, uh, we'll give you that day. We'll give you Saturday, one, one freebie. But the rest of the week, Monday through Friday, uh, consider thinking through what it would be to read those uh, at a break. There are a couple verses each. They're not long. There's a prayer in there. Here's my prayer for you this week, as you see. And the opposite side, um, you'll, you'll have a song that we sang. This is the song, Come Ye Sinner. I emphasize one part. I love the song. We're going to try to be really, really intentional with our song choices to choose songs that are rich 
Uh, I found this band, Ken Norton Hall Band, that did these old hymns in a wild new arrangement. I love them. They're beautiful. If you see it highlighted, uh, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. How glorious is that? That if we wait to wash ourselves, the horrible news is we'll never be clean enough to approach Christ. Uh, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Don't tarry. Come dirty, vile, filthy, weak and sore, um, as the song says. So I, I, I highlight a song there. And then on the back, you'll notice that cohort questions for the week are right there. Uh, so guess what? This is so good news. You don't have to wait for me and my, my procrastination, horrible time management skill on Monday and Tuesday to email you out cohort questions. They're right there. Oh, so glorious. So Donna is smiling ear to ear. She is so thrilled with me right now. Uh, if I was a puppy, I'd be getting a treat from Donna right now. Um, that is the cohort questions for you to consider throughout the week. As you meet ladies this week, uh, those are questions that we hope to cover. That's the bulletin. It's nothing new. It's way low key. We're going so, I'm so hip, as somebody said this week to me. It's not even funny. Pray with me as we get to our sermon. Father, you are good, a great Father, who in all things loves us at all times, gives us what we need, what we think we want, and says no to us, because a loving Father says no. Thank you for this time, this gathering. May we come before you, understanding your word more today. So as I pray, amen. How seriously do you take sin? How earnestly do you fight like the plague to stay away from sin? What I hope for today is this. I hope the understanding, once you leave from Jude, and yes, Jude is a book, and there's no chapter titles. It's near the end. Nobody reads it because it shares a page with Third John. So people just assume it's one book. But Jude has for us today this understanding. It, it, it says, how serious do you take sin? What do you think of sin? How do you act towards sin? And here's what I hope for your understanding and your, your hearts to hear that a better sermon is preached it says this, I hope as sin's pervasiveness merits diligence of behavior and wisdom of association. Sin's pervasiveness, the, the depth to which sin is real, merits diligence and wisdom of association. Because here's my hope, how to get there. I hope you understand that sin's pervasiveness, just how saturated it is, have you ever seen those commercials of an of a oil spill out in the Gulf with, with bird life? And, and the birds are just coated with the slime and the pervasiveness of that oil that drips in every part. And you cannot just simply take water and, and get the oil off these birds. You must saturate in something that will clean it in entirety. And if, and if oil spot is left under a feather somewhere, the weight distribution of the bird cannot fly, it cannot live, it will die. Sin's pervasiveness is so saturated. It is like oil on feather of birds. 
and it will kill you. Sin's pervasiveness demands a tone, a name, and a siren. Demands a tone, a name, and a siren. Sin cannot be taken too lightly. It can be taken out of context and seen as the devil behind every corner, which is a false reality as well. I think there's two dichotomies. Much in life, we try to be binary in our understanding. Uh, We're pitted like this in the world. People will come and say to you, are you for or against X? And you say to yourself, well, it's not that simple. Uh, It's more complex. It's more gray than that. Well, are you for or against? Like, what? In some instances, for. In some instances, against. Sin's pervasiveness, how you handle sin, is not one of those issues. It is not should a school board create a bond measure. That's, that's pretty neutral. We say, oh, yeah, of course, we want to help our kids or, or wait, more taxes. Okay, great. That's a beautiful conversation. And we can come down on either side with wisdom. Sin's <coughs> pervasiveness, on the other hand, does not dictate that we can take that stance. We must be diligent in it. The one caution is this. We can begin to see that Satan is behind every nefarious action, stone, rock, and door. There are two qualms with Satan, as one famous author said. We either think too lightly of him or we think far too much of him. Satan and sin is not behind every action. You cannot say of somebody, well, he's, he is of Satan, just because they said something you don't like. Uh, that's, that's biblical assassination. But on the other hand, we cannot assume actions are well-intentioned and therefore good. The New Testament author Paul implores hearers in Corinthians and in Timothy to flee from sin, run from it like a plague. My suspicion is that if you ask pastors their greatest joy in pastoral ministry, it'd be the same as parents. What do parents enjoy doing? Do they enjoy instilling rules and restrictions in bedtime to their children? Or do they like throwing birthday parties for their kids? Ah, they love throwing birthday parties for their kids. It's not discipline. It's not warning. It's throwing birthday parties. It's going to concerts. It's talking with them in warm walks in the sun. It's sitting down and and having your kid during a movie, unbeknownst to you, just snuggle up next to you, wrap their arms around your arm, and lean their head against you. Pastors love celebrating new converts, a believer coming, overcoming a struggle, a wedding celebration. Pastors do not enjoy discipline, much to the demise, much, much to the, to the uh, lies of other people. Pastors don't enjoy it, which is why it's very wild that Jude here, Jude gives a tone of seriousness. Because what does Jude know that we need to know as people? A friend, a lover, a parent, if somebody loves you, they will tell you no. If they do not ever tell you no, they do not love you. Just as important as encouraging people with faith in Christ is cautionary tales of defending and fighting for their faith. God's people in his church are made holy because God is holy, and people must, pastors must, we must, you must contend for the faith that was given to you, as Jude says. If you love people, you will warn them. 
Christianity is not just a faith of yes, it is a faith of no. And why does Christ say no to us? Why does Jude caution us here? Why should you caution people with no against sin that they're in? Why? Why would you why would you cease? Why would you stop? Why would you pause before saying no to somebody? A friend, maybe. What are you afraid of? If you tell them no, you've ended relationship. If you say no, how dare you tell me no? You can't tell me no. I, don't you know who I am? I live in America with freedoms. How dare you say I can't do something? The Bible implores us, cautionary tale after cautionary tale, flee from sin because it will kill you. You must warn as encourage. Jude, in the beginning aspects, it says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith. What is Jude doing here? Essentially, it's this. Jude is writing a, a, a congratulations card. And he's saying, Oh, I, I love everything we share. I love the salvation. I love, I love how you've come to hear the good news and receive it and mature. This is beautiful. And then he hears something quite alarming. We're going to get to what that is. But he, but he changes immediately. He is more than likely mid-sentence writing. Imagine this, if you will. Imagine Jude. Imagine his office. Imagine as a pastor is, is writing a sermon and he hears of something going on. Do you know how many people, you know how many pastors on September 9th had their sermon written but come September 11th had to change everything about it? Every pastor in America that knew what they were doing scrapped their sermon and said, we need to write something totally different. Because when you get news of, of magnitude and weight, you must change course. You must give hope where hope is needed. You must give caution where caution is needed. Judah's mid-sermon prep, mid-letter writing, and he throws the whole thing out and he says, I've heard something alarming. What is it? We'll get to that. But here's the point. The point is, Sin's pervasiveness has a tone, and it is seriousness. He says, I felt compelled to write to you. It says this. It compelled is this sense that says, I wanted to, and I am. But more than anything, I had to. Because if I didn't, if your child goes running into the street with a car coming on, would you break your rule of not raising your voice to them? You absolutely would. You would scream, you would shout, you would start throwing things at the car, you would start running out, and you would throw up your hand saying, stop. That's what Jude's doing here. Sin's pervasiveness demands a tone of seriousness, diligence. Your sin demands seriousness. If you are taking lightly what Christ himself thought the whole world of to take sin on his shoulders and cling to a cross, and you think that is of no consolation to put any effort or energy to, you are entertaining death. We're going to come to an understanding here, an analogy that the scripture uses to understand sin. Have you ever read those news reports of uh, lion tamer gets eaten by lion? And you think to yourself, Poor lion tamer. No. 
Not poor lion tamer. Why? He's training a lion. Whose fault is that? Not the lion's. What was the lion's made-to-do job? It is the best predator you've ever seen. Is it the lion tamer's fault? Yes. Why? Because he's getting cozy with a killer. We do the same thing with sin. And you cannot, you cannot pet and train something that is made to kill. You must put it in a cage, throw it away, and step away from it. Are you entertaining your sin like you are training a lion? Thinking that it's fine and cozy and good? Or do you have seriousness say, this will kill me? Sin's pervasiveness demands a name. Notice what I said earlier. I said, uh, there, are, there are sins which need addressing, but they, we do not see Satan behind every rock and door. Jude warns his people, says, I was re- ready to write to you. I was excited, sharing a faith. I stopped. Why did I have to stop? Oh, this is going to kill you. The second thing is, it demands a name. He then goes, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. What cannot be said is that we must police ourselves to the extent that immoral actions are being bickered about. What does Jude say? He says, for certain individuals. Does he say everybody? No. Does he say the whole church? No. Does he say you people? No. What does he say? He says, certain individuals. Sin has a name. It demands a name to address it, to call it out, and to say, these things need to stop. These people are wrong. We have a Christian, Christianity of nice sometimes, which is one of the most saturated sins in the church today. We hear somebody's teaching or we, we hear somebody uh, doing something and we want to say, well, I can't judge them. I can't tell them they're wrong. Who am I? It's true. That's a great posture. <coughs> Who are we to say somebody's sin is wrong? Who do we say that our sin is wrong? Who do we say your sin is wrong? Christ. And what did he say at the beginning? He says, Jude, I, I'm asking you to continue the faith that we all received once and for all. What's he saying? He's saying this. If Christ said it, you can say it. If Christ said it, you can say it. You can put a name to it. And this is not, this is not going and looking for a fight. If you were to hire somebody to come in and you said to this person, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to pay you $500 go throughout my entire house and write a list of everything that's wrong with it. Right? Go, go through my life. Go, watch. Here. Here's my financial records. Tell me where I'm going wrong. Here. Here's my body. Here's my eating. Here's my dietary. Show me what's wrong. Will that person come back with a clean bill of health for your home, your finances, or your body? Why? If you go looking for things that are wrong, you will find them. Jude is not saying, well, let's just talk about everything. Let's, let's open it up. Let's investigate every single nook and cranny. He's saying, no, it was brought to my attention. I have scripture that goes against it. I must comment on it. Sin's pervasiveness demands a name because of this. 
We have far too much sin right in our face to go looking for a fight. What if you just dealt with the sin that's right in front of you? What if you dealt with the sin that is so evident, that is so obvious, that is so blatant? You don't, need to go, you don't need to go finding a home inspector to come in and tell you what's the matter with your home. The fact that you have a home inspector coming in to look at your home more than likely means you know what the problem is already. You just want somebody else to say it. Christ has said everything we need to know about it. Now, what, is, what are these certain individuals? It says they have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. Here's what they were doing. They were teaching one thing and doing another. This is not heresy. Jude is not warning against false teachers. Elsewhere we have false teachers. That, that's fine. What is Jude talking about? Jude is saying, look, look, look. There's been these pastors that have been wandering around and they've come into your church and they preach and, and they got good things to say. You might even like what they say. You might even want them to be pastor with you. You might even want to sit down and have dinner with them, which is what they do later. But he says this. If these people don't have the character to go along with their competency, they're liars. What is he saying? What's Jude saying? That's, that's actually wow. That actually flies in the face of everything up until about two years ago that American culture is showing us. How long do we excuse people because they give us what we want? How long do we excuse people because they agree with our views? How long do we excuse people because they're really good business professionals? How long do we excuse people because they can throw a football 90 yards before we say competency, popularity is not king. What does Jude say is king? Character. Character. He names it. He says, they, oh, guys, they may preach really well. Actually, darkest of dark is reserved for them. Why? Because they're using their platform to get what they want. If a preacher wants to, wants to preach, if a Christian wants to have Christianity because of what it gets them, what were, these, what were these people doing? They were the ones who wanted things in return. They wanted good relationships. They wanted their business card to have the Jesus fish on it so that you knew they were a Christian business. So come, give business to me because we're Christians. Let's help each other out. And you actually get down to it. And these people have girlfriends on the side. They have another family somewhere. They have tax evasion problems throughout their entire business. And you say, wait, what are you doing? And they say, well, I have a Jesus fish. Doesn't, we're good. Well, yeah, I, I, oh, I, I hate fill in hot button issue here. Oh, I, I vote against abortion. Oh, I'm, I, I am, I am all about Israel. What's your character? Oh, don't look at my private life. No, no, that's, that's off limits. It's everything. If your private life is in shambles, but your public life is good, you have no life at all. Jude is saying this is deception at its finest. 
because you have teachers of Christ's gospel that are saying, Jesus can tell me about faith. How often do you hear people say, maybe they find out you're a Christian, and they say, look, keep your faith how you want to. You can tell me about Jesus. Don't tell me how to spend my money. You can tell me about Jesus. Don't you dare talk about my sexuality. You can tell me about Jesus. Don't you dare tell me how I should buy things. We want the blessings of God, but we don't want him to dictate our actions of behavior. Why? Because we put Jesus on a nice little box in a nice little quarter and say, all right, religious dude, stay there. We sphere religion as to an aspect of our lives and not the overarching thing which dictates our lives. Do not trust a single person who doesn't have a personal life of character that is upright. Why? Oh, we'll get there. But Jude is imploring people. He's saying to them, don't follow empty Christians. Why are they empty? Because sin's pervasiveness has a name. Certain people who use Christ's license. Does Christ ever once talk about premarital sex in the Bible? Not once. It's not a topical. You cannot type premarital sex into some Google search biblical verse and something come up. It doesn't. Uh, I remember when I was in college. You knew whose sexual purity was going out the window. Why? That was their argument. Well, Jesus doesn't talk about premarital sex. You're absolutely right. He doesn't. He also doesn't talk about butchering people in the woods. Should we go ahead and have license to do that? Well, no, clearly. He says murder is fine. He says your sexual purity is of utmost importance. Where do we get that? Oh, let's go down. See, these teachers were saying one thing. They were using the Bible against itself to eliminate and nullify the thing to which the Bible was getting at. The Bible is getting at this. I didn't come to just save part of you. I came to save all of you, including your morality. There's this wild uh, story in Numbers. Jude references this. He says, there were three men that gave examples of this type of life. Uh, one was Korah. He didn't like how God was setting up his leadership. He wanted to be a leader of Israel. Israel had gone out of Egypt. They were enslaved. They had good things, I suppose, in Egypt. They had a roof over their head. They had food on their plates. They had a job, albeit building monuments to kings of men. And then, and then God brought them out. Korah comes up, and then he says, Moses, Aaron, you guys are going to lead these people. And Korah says, no, 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 no. This is awful. This is wrong. This is horrible. And he says, God is foolish for bringing us out of Egypt, and he's even doubly foolish for making you leader. He says, God has lost his mind. So Moses is told by God, fine, give them a censor. It's a, it's a, it's a light. It's a stick candle. And he says, uh, have these, these people, these 250 that Korah brought out. Korah is a leader. He claims God doesn't know what he's doing. He says, I know better. He goes and gets 249 other people to come with him to go before Moses and say, we want to lead. So God says, fine. Give them give the sticks. Give them the holy sticks. And have them come before the tent of meeting. What's he doing here? God is saying this. He's saying, you think you're so great? Let's put you to the test then. It's a holiness test. They believe they knew better. They were shown not to be men of character. Because as they come to the tent, they say, fine, you want to lead? Go ahead. Let's, let's do this. And he, and he brings out a, a sensor and he lights it. 
and they light all the, all the candles. There's two ins- wild stories in Numbers. They're shown not to be holy. They're shown to be men that are selfish. They're shown to be shepherds that want to feed their own belly, their own good, their own platform. He doesn't want to lead Israel for Israel's sake. Why does he want to lead? Why does he want to be known? So Korah's name can be highlighted. They're shown to be horrible. And there's two other leaders with Korah that come to him. And what happens is they go to their tent. They show up at the tent and they say, you have been shown to be unholy. And they line up everything they have. And God says in scripture, it says, God opened up the earth and swallowed everything they had, including their lives. Their punishment were their tents, their possessions, and their lives swallowed by the earth is split into two and took everything. See, when you act in disobedience to God's commands, you risk your life. Why not commit adultery? Because adultery severs relationship? Yes, true. Because adultery in a covenant relationship is good to keep things together? Yes, of course. But what if we added this? And what if we've gotten away from this, people? What if by committing adultery, we are putting our lives on the line with a good and holy and perfect God? And what if our earth is going to swallow us up and eat us whole? And we say, no, I'm, I'm with Christ. No, I'm a Christian. Look at how I vote. Then why isn't your life following suit? In the Old Testament, um, sin is personified in in many different ways. And it's also personified by this. Uh, Jesus says himself, sin is a crouching lion at the door. It's ready to leap and to kill you. These teachers thought they were safe because they were doing God's will. They were preaching and teaching. People could have been coming to faith even. What nullified their faith? Their moral actions. What's so pervasive about sin is that it needs to be named. It needs to be understood. It needs to be certain people. It needs to be said, this is not God's way. Why? Because sin is like the flu. It's poison to be around people that, are, that are, are near it. It says later on, it says, they come to your love feast and they don't feed you, they feed themselves. Have you ever been at dinner parties where somebody, there's like a, a set amount of food and somebody keeps on getting up and getting seconds and thirds and fourths and fifths and help himself and their plate is giant where everybody else's plate just has their first and they're waiting for everybody else to eat. It's social etiquette to wait for other people. To eat. And they're, eat, they're just stuffing their face. These teachers were much like the same, stuffing themselves, gorging themselves on what they wanted, not what people needed. Servant leadership? Ha! I scoff at that. I am strong. Look at me. I'm shirtless on a horse in a river, flexing my giant muscles. Look at me! And you say, that is no leader at all. Why is that no leader? The best leader is a servant. The best leader is a follower. Don't follow people that are gregarious and encouraging and exciting and sexy and cool. Why? I got a good guess at what's happening in their personal life. That a pastor is known for writing a book, shows up at an event, and there's a huge line, and every other pastor in the line is sitting there waiting to wait their turn to get in, and this person goes to the front and says, do you know who I am? 
Let me in. I'm so special. That's what these people were doing. Are you doing that? Are you feeding your own belly? Are you eating what you want? Or are you serving others by keeping a holy life, by submitting to Christ, by giving to people what you already have? It's a DNA. You cannot replicate what you don't have. And if you don't have morality, you won't replicate morality. Because if you don't have Christ, you don't have morality. Do you, see, do you see the line of argument that Jews making? He's saying, if you feed yourself, it's because you're actually just doing what you want. And if you're doing what you want, you're not following Christ. If you're not following Christ, you don't have him. Judah's saying this. If you find somebody that has immorality in their lives, question who they think Christ is. He's using caution. Because sin's pervasiveness needs a name so that we know how to defend ourselves against it. Uh, when the eclipse happened this last year, uh, there, was, there was all sorts of people going into the eye doctor immediately afterwards, right? Do you know why many of them did? Because they did a Google search and they said, I need eye protection. They got eye protection for it. They put it on. They wound out. They, they found out that it was a knockoff and the glasses didn't keep them from anything and they're staring at the sun. They're staring at, in this case, sin just blazing as hot as can be and they didn't have the right protection and they were blinded. Are you using knockoff Christianity and become blinded by the sin that you have in your life? Are you picking verses here and there? Are you doing things like, I go to church, I supply for my family, uh, I'm not smash drunk every night. That's a plus, isn't it? Yeah, it's a plus. That's great. That's good. That's good. It doesn't get you off the hook from every other thing that's in your life. Sin is a, a tiger, a lion crouching at the door, ready to devour. And it's like the flu. If you're sitting at table with somebody who has it, imagine sitting at a table. Imagine taking a small bit of knowledge, just enough to get yourself in trouble, and then spreading it to other people. What if you're sitting at a table with somebody who considers themselves a strong, mature believer, a teacher, and there's a sister or a brother who's struggling with a, a devotional life? They say, well, I want, I want to read the Bible daily. And this, this Christian is just shoveling food, 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 food in their mouths, filling their own belly, thinking to themselves, I'm head of the table because I just preached this morning. Look how special I am. Shouldn't I, be, shouldn't I be honored? Shouldn't I have a table up in front of everybody look at me and say how great I am? No. Why? Christianity is about serving. But imagine you're at this table. Imagine they're shoveling food in their face and they say this. You don't need a devotional life. Ha, huh, I don't have one. I don't need one. And they discourage somebody. They take a little bit of information. They say devotional life can be legalistic. That's true, right? If somebody says, you must read the Bible every day or you're going to hell. That's legalistic. Ah. But if they say, you don't, you don't need a devotional life. You're with Jesus every day. It's the flu. Because if that, if that conscious-laden person, brother or sister, who's struggling with it, takes that and says, I don't need a devotional life, they could end up in ruin. Very quickly. Because somebody who's, quote, more mature, who says nice things but doesn't have the character behind it, can kill them. 
Remember, it's specific sins and specific people. You must claim it. If you walked into the doctor's office and had an illness and the doctor said, I don't know what you have. Are you made comfortable by that? Or if you say, you don't know what this is? And you go to expert after expert after expert and they say, we don't know what this is. You go, then what are we going to do? And they say, we don't know how to treat it because we don't know what it is. Jude is giving you what this is. He is saying, people who feed themselves and sit with you and make other people sin like them are false against Christianity. Are you and your sins against the Father of all eternity? Is Jude speaking to you? Sin's pervasiveness demands a siren. Look at how Jude uses four analogies. He, he says, okay, look, it demands a tone, it demands a name, and it demands a siren. Jude uses four analogies. They're vivid. They help us. A faith that only changes one or two of head, heart, and mind, head, heart, body, they're not something that's good. There's not something that's beautiful. If you have a Christian that has one aspect, they're really, really knowledgeable Christians. Are they saved? Because their heart, their emotions, their affections, and their actions aren't changed by it? Scripture says they're not saved. If you have somebody that serves continually but doesn't think Jesus is Lord, are they saved? Nope. If you have somebody who, whose affections and emotions are changed but they don't serve and they don't know, are they saved? No. It must take all three. And Judas specifically saying, look, without moral reformation, you don't understand the gospel. Therefore, he says, there are clouds without rain blown along by the wind. Ever have people that promise you life by their new great system, and yet next year this time you have somebody else that's promising a new great system for life? And next year, and next year, and next year. They promise life, but they cannot deliver because they have nothing to give. They are clouds without rain. They're not serious about a changed life because they don't take care to understand the pervasiveness of sin. And they cannot be held in regard in any meaningful, viable, compelling way. They live as if there's no Christ because they do not know his words. When Christ says, be holy because, when God says, be holy because I am holy, he's not just joking. He is saying, be holy. Just because you can speak, you can teach, you can motivate, gives no one cause to follow you. People will let you preach because of what you do. Let me say that again. People will let you speak to them about the gospel because of what you do. This is not legalistic. This is, this is not moralism. Listen to me. This is not moralism. It's you taking so seriously the words of Christ that you cannot help but do them yourselves. Would you ever take driving lessons from somebody who has 25 accidents in the last year? Would you let your kids be staying with somebody overnight who thinks that fire is not a real thing but just flickering light and air? You wouldn't let them touch anything precious. God is no different. Those who think sin is of no consequence, their moral actions are of no consequence, don't understand Christ's complete salvation 
These people are clouds without rain. They're like athletes who think that water is an option in athletic competitions. They're like firemen and women who think that smoke is not real and cannot kill you. They are useless. Then he says they're like autumn trees without fruit, uprooted, twice dead. They're incapable of doing anything because they're void. They, they have no power. Can a tree that is uprooted grow any fruit? It's impossible. Why? It's not connected to a life source. Those who just teach with their mouths or talking heads are not connected to Christ. They are trees unplugged from the Father. And if you go looking for fruit from them, you'll be wildly disappointed because they have no root system. They're also wild waves of the seed foaming up their shame. Look, they, they pollute waters. They foam with a type of slime. That's like sloshing of waves. Ever, ever seen waves slosh in an outcove and create this really foam and then hit rocks and create this slime residue and, and maybe some dead sea creature is on there and, and some, some seaweed and some dead organic material? It's a really good show before the slime, right? Seeing those waves crash and spew up. It's a really good show. When they're done, what is left? Clouded, polluted waters. Can you drink out of that? You cannot. They are just like fireworks. Good for show, but holding no power. And finally, they are wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. In what ways were stars beneficial to the readers of the Bible? Before GPS, before, before Apple and Amazon took over the world, Google was a, a, a monolithic god. How did people chart navigational territories? Stars. It says they're like wandering stars. Can you chart a life? Can you chart a course? Can you be out in the middle of the Pacific and say to yourself, there's true north. I, I now orientate everything else based upon this. If that north star switches positions every night, you can't. One decade, this sin is acceptable. The next decade, it's awful. One decade, it's this information. It's this highlighted piece. The next decade, it's changed in totality. Why? Christians who change morality of the Bible are doing so because they want something out of their changed morality. They rewrite the pages of Scripture to facilitate their life. Why? Because they like their life. Anybody that says God can be God of everything else but just not my actions has no God of all. None. They're not fixed, these stars. Their motivation they lust after things and change. They pursue things. Why does scripture say elders must not be people who are in, into fads? Mature Christians shouldn't be Christians that are into fads. Why? Fads are all over the place. And if you go chasing them, I feel like a TLC song is coming on. Like, don't go chasing waterfalls. Stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're, streams that you're used to. It says, it says this. Why are you chasing something that you know can't bring life? You are doing so because you want something out of it and you're lusting. Don't do so. Stick to the constant. Stick to Christ. And it says, the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. I'm going to make no qualms about this. Christians who claim to be Christians but have no morality in their lives, 
do not understand the gospel and therefore will not see light again. Sin's pervasiveness demands a tone, a name, and silence. Jude is saying this. I was about to write to you good things. Now I have to go back. I have to warn you. Because if you follow them, blackest darkness is reserved for you. No Christ, no light, no hope. Why? Because you make Christ a liar by saying, I believe everything you said. Don't tell me how to live my life. Christ says, no dice. The rich young ruler said, what must I do to enter the kingdom? He says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He says, I'm out. I'll follow your laws, sure. What if Christ is asking you to sell every single thing you have and give it to the poor? And you say, no, I can't do that. Then you don't know the Father. You say, well, he would never do that. Yes, he would. Well, I can't do that. True. Why? Because you don't believe Christ is enough. You believe your things must be given to you. You must believe that the things to which you hold are better than the things that he can give. Do you see why somebody who is a wandering star cannot be trusted? Because they think to themselves, I know what's best. And if I know what's best, I can navigate the stars myself. Oh, church. If Christ said it, it's not an option. Your morality. It's very commonplace. Authors, pastors all over the world say this about giving. Give to the church because God will bless you back. Not a promise he's ever made. Not a promise he's ever made. What has he made? Here's the promises that he's made. You'll be hated. You'll be persecuted. You might die. However, you will have eternal help. However, I will give you the spirit. However, there's a place forever with you. However, I will never reject you. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. It's not that the, all the bad things will be gone. It's we will get through them because I am with you. Anybody that says give because you'll be blessed by God, you're not giving. That's called a transaction. You're paying God something to get something in return. What if if you don't give, you'll be sent to hell? And you're like, Christ would never do that. Who are you to know? Who are we to know? We're like wandering stars that navigate the sea based upon our own emotion. What do we do with that? Christ died for all aspects of your life. He didn't just die for your intellect or your emotion or your body. He died for it all. All your horrible thoughts of your racist tendencies that are inside your head, he died for. All the lustful thoughts that you haven't acted upon, he died for. Imagine if Christ just died for your bodily actions. How many sinful actions are still in your head? Oh, he didn't just die for your, your sinful actions in your head. He actually died for the sinful actions you've done. How many horrible things have you actually practiced? And he said, I died for that too. How many times has your affection been drawn to something else? He said, I died for that too. See, Judah's warning. Don't follow people, trust Christians, that just follow one aspect. Intellectuals, emotional, <coughs> servant-minded. He says, it all needs to be there. And if it's not all there, run away from it. 
there's a famous Puritan that has this to say, and I want to leave you with this. Sin's pervasiveness demands a tone. It demands a name and a siren because sin's pervasiveness needs diligence of our behavior and our thought and associations. But this Puritan said this, be killing sin or sin be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You don't negotiate with sin. You don't pet sin. You don't train sin. You kill it. Why? Because its entire job is to kill you. And if you're not killing it, there's only one other option. It's killing you. The question I leave with you today, are you killing sin in your life? Or are you placating it? Are you allowing it to sit around? Like rust in a car, in a boat, cancer in a body, are you naming it? Are you petting it? Are you keeping it around because it's kind of cute? No one thinks cancer is cute. Everybody says, get it out. Have the same mentality with sin. Have the same mentality with sin. And if you don't, don't think you need to do better. Do not hear that. Rather, look to somebody who is better, who did die for your sin, of thought, of heart, and of action, not just one component. Let's pray. Father, may we know what sin is in our lives. May we not be blind to it, thinking that we are doing well, when in reality, it has snuck in. Let us have teaching and lives that align together because we did not come to save part of us, but all of us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.